Hey there. This is the Mercenary Podcast. It's about the work of some of the most interesting people I know. Over the past several years as a tech entrepreneur, I've had the opportunity to cross paths with some truly original characters, and I've always wanted the chance to just get them in a room and hit record. This is that chance. As Steve Jobs said, here's to the crazy ones. All right, so welcome. This is the first episode of the Mercenary Podcast. My name is Matt Monahan, and I'm with Dan Clifton in uh, Los Angeles. I'm in Philadelphia. Um, we wanted to first start out by kind of uh, just introducing ourselves. Uh, so like I said, I'm Matt. I am a UX designer and product manager for a big data company called RJ Metrics. Um, most of what we do is we talk to a lot of e-commerce companies and SaaS companies, and we dig into their data uh, by connecting to their database, do some transformations, and then output that kind of stuff as charts. Um, so we let, visualize... Let me just say, I don't want to interrupt, but let yeah, me just ahead. say that you had me at SaaS company. So <laughs> that's a whole other... It's, that's a whole other thing we can talk about. But, it's uh, it's sassy. Uh, yeah, software as a service. Oh, right. Software as a service. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's... I mean, what I do there is I'm part of the product team, and uh, which is composed of... Um, five people now and basically what we do is we come up with a roadmap for what what are the next you know projects that are we're going to work on for the next year and uh, and then we spin up these teams of maybe two to six or seven developers and we try to uh, scope our projects between uh, two and ten weeks and we basically we, you know we decide what to do we get a lot of uh, feedback from customers a lot of feedback from internal stakeholders and it's really our job to um, kick off the project and then make sure that it's it's done well and it's done on time and on budget. Um, I mean, I could I, I could kind of turn it over to you, uh, Dan. At this point, it's, it's very similar to what you do. It's it's well, yeah. I, that's uh, I guess that's for for me to decide uh, how similar <laughs> it is. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess we both just manage people and expectations constantly. Um, uh, my name is Dan Clifton. I'm a film producer. I live in Los Angeles. I produce projects uh, for film, no television as of yet, but there are a few things in the pipeline. Uh, but I produce for film through my own label, which is called Cliffbrook Films. Uh, I produced a film called uh, The Den uh, through Cliffbrook recently. Uh, my partner in Cliffbrook, his name is David Brooks. He and I worked on a uh, film called ATM Together. The Brook part. Yes, yes. I'm the Cliff. He is the Brook, hence <laughs> Cliffbrook. There's a cool logo in that. Well, not a cool logo. There's a bad like 90s logo in in that name somewhere um but we haven't made it yet uh but um i also i work for a larger and more experienced producer named peter saffron um and uh his company is called the saffron company so i also produce things with and for him uh most recently he made a movie called the conjuring and the conjuring uh spinoff which was annabelle which came out this fall so uh i also work uh with him and, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, I guess right now, unfortunately, I have like four different projects in different stages of, uh, you know, in development, being shot, being finished. And I guess like what Matt does, it's constantly, I mean, you're sort of a manager, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of in charge of, of figuring out how things are being done and also doing the dirty work yourself, right? That's sort of what, what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think... Part of my job, especially when I was first hired, was to uh, actually write some uh, some code. 
Um, but for the most part nowadays, I'm really just managing a, a team of developers. Um, you know, my official title is UX designer, but uh, I, you know, it should I be go called by... cat herder. Yeah, really, yeah. That's really what it is. That's actually a pretty popular term in my industry. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'm also a product designer. Okay, so uh, where were we? Well, we're basically talking about one of the things that we we got together over Thanksgiving in, in Philadelphia, which is where uh, Matt and I are both from outside of Philadelphia originally. And um, we got together recently, and, and we, we were talking about sort of the diametric opposites um, that our, indus- our different respective industries represent. Because, you know, in filmmaking, you, you work off of a script, which I guess is sort of like working off of a plan and code for in, in building a, a site or building a platform. But there's a lot of hurry up and wait in filmmaking. There's a lot of getting lots of people together. Maybe you have a crew of 100 or 150 or even hundreds more than that. And then everyone is suddenly on the clock and you only have a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of days to actually finish something. And it's almost like it's a race to the bottom in different ways. Whereas in web design, how, how do you counter sort of what your process is? Because it's always amazing. You're always amazed to hear how ridiculous what I do is and vice versa. Right. So I, I think one thing that's really interesting about software is like there's the consulting aspect, which is, you know, the part that you're, you were familiar with when we did some work together. And then there's the software as a service, the product aspect, which is what I'm doing now. And with consulting, it's it's very much... You have to uh, you have to get the job done by a certain deadline, or else you're not going to get paid. And if you're not going, if you do that uh, too much, where you you miss the deadline, you you know you're running out of money. You get into this cash crunch, and it can like sink your business. Um, when you have a product business, uh, it's a lot better because for the most part, if you have enough customers and you're profitable enough, uh, if you have enough cash in the bank and enough cash flow. You could just sit around for an entire month if you wanted to and still get paid almost the same amount. Maybe you you know you wouldn't get to uh, the place you want to be uh, to get more customers, or maybe you'd lose some customers that um, uh, you need to support to to keep. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know it's you you can kind of you have a little leeway in in the in the work that you do. You could do more experimental things. You're not being paid. The company isn't being paid for every hour that's being billed for the. Uh, for the developer, so like those things are decoupled. Now, like so, the software, the service is more of a long tail format rather than like a, a winner take all kind of model. Like, like you're not like you don't have this thing for your supper as much because like it's not like like week to week. Right. I think, uh, yeah, that, like what I was saying before about just the uh, engineers' hours are decoupled from uh, the money that's being paid by the customers. Right. Um, so, <laughs> to your point about me always raving about how crazy the the film industry is it means that the deadlines that we set are are um kind of imaginary uh you know if we miss a deadline by two weeks the company is not going to go down because you know we're not going to get a payment from a client it just means that we're you know either we uh didn't estimate our time properly or you know we, we just didn't uh work um as effectively as we were supposed to um but you know most of it comes down to either not estimating properly, or um, there's a bunch of unknowns that pop up. Yeah, which just seems insane to me because everything in the film industry is based on a deadline. It's so funny if you look at you know how Marvel, which apparently has 32 films coming out over the next six years of all these obscure characters that no one really knew existed. Like they've already plotted release dates for 2021, um, which to me 
uh, is sort of <laughs> the state. That's of, crazy. <laughs> well, it's just the state of the film industry. There's always jockeying for top spots like May 3rd or Memorial Day or, or you know, July 4th. But it's like the fact that people have gone to the, those lengths is, is just indicative of where things are. But even from what I deal with, you know, it's like when you're closing a loan, um, when you close a loan for a movie, it's basically like closing a very complicated mortgage for a set of condos. That's exactly what financing a movie is like. It's not a house. It's a set of condos. Um, you, you, the construction is a little more complicated. The selling of it's a little more complicated. You, know, you have deadlines for that closing. You have deadlines when you actually shoot the thing on set, when you have all people sitting around and everyone's getting paid by the hour. You know, you then have outside delivery dates for different deliverables for foreign and domestic and all of that. And so it's funny when you talk about your your business as not having I mean, it's not like you don't have any deadlines, but it's really much more of a softer endeavor. Yeah, the deadlines uh, can be massaged uh, to take that uh, that metaphor. Um, Yeah, it's really it's it's, your deadlines are based all around opportunity cost. Um, You've got something off in the distance, some vision that you want to hit. And you have to draw the line somewhere. You know, you can't have projects go on forever. You can't be a perfectionist because uh, you you could spend an infinite amount of time on any project. But I, I actually wanted to bring up um, wh- what is that rule, that union rule for you know uh, any I guess anyone who's who's in the the various like carpenter uh, gaffing unions where if you keep somebody over a certain hour limit. Um, what is that like? That you have to pay them like an outrageous multiple of their uh, their their hourly. Well, it depends on the collective bargaining agreement, but also in California. I mean, for example, if if you don't give people uh, obviously a meal break, even if they're non-union or union or whatever, by California rules, you have to give them at least one meal penalty, which is you know the same as one hour of work. But yeah, I mean, traditionally, if you are part of the IA collective bargaining agreement, you know after. Um, you know, after eight hours, it's time and a half to 12. Traditionally, film film sets are, are built around 12-hour days, but the hours are still built on an eight-hour system. And so basically, everyone is getting eight hours of straight time and then four hours of time and a half. And then after that, it's, it's, it's generally two hours of double. And then you eventually you hit sort of what's called golden hour, which is like three, which is like three times an hour. And that sort of prevails... Um, until it gets really unsafe. Um, but there's a funny story about there's a crazy electrician who will not be named um, that uh, Bernard Hunt and uh, uh, a few other people and I know. And he once made, he said he made $22,000 in one week working on, I think it was the pilot of Boardwalk Empire because they just worked like 23-hour days, six days in a row. And so <laughs> eventually he was just making like, so much money. Now, it's awful and those rules are in place so that you so that you don't like you know the producer doesn't actually make people work a long time because it actually has a real cost um and you know being tired is actually one of the most dangerous things you know sleep deprivation is the most dangerous thing ever it's even worse than you know driving texting or driving drunk it's 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 awful so in some ways those rules are are put in place for a reason yeah i mean um like there's such an aspect of you either get it or you don't you know like you spend the entire day setting up for you know probably three or four shots maybe depending on the movie and uh well depends you You try and do a lot of different setups but there's a lot of there is a weird thing where i think what you're getting at there's a lot there's a weird thing where sometimes you like you know that you're going to cut a lot of stuff out of the movie anyway 
it's weird. Like when I'm in, so I'm in the edit right now. I did, um, you know, I did, I did a small horror remake in September, um, amongst one of the projects I'm working on and we're in the edit now. And, you know, there's, there's stuff that, you know, you know, that certain people fought to have on the day or certain things we didn't get on the day, but now we're in the edit. It really is about like what we have, you know? And so a lot of times you're like, you know, cause I know what the numbers are. I'm like, well, you know, we spent all this money on this scene and this setup. We can't cut that out because we spent two days shooting that. And I know exactly what the opportunity cost of doing that is, but it just doesn't work you know subjectively so you have to make these gut calls where like the your the finance part of you is like cringing while the creative part of you is just like this is what this is what has to be done yeah it's a, it's a really it's a really interesting um thing because exactly it's i know exactly how much each day cost and i know on that day i know we it's like we went we went over by three hours to do this and we we call people early to get them ready for this and then you know maybe a whole five minutes is cut out and um, you know, you've already sunk money into that, but I guess that's in every industry. I mean, is there anything like that that you deal with or no? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of my job is trying to minimize, uh, that from ever happening. Um, it's trying to kind of do experiments that can confirm that what you're, the big project that you're about to do, uh, is, is worth it. So, um, like that's kind of like the lean startup, uh, mentality, meaning, you know, tests test a minimum viable product before you uh, release something and that's partly why we scope our projects between two and ten weeks because uh, right at ten weeks you kind of have to decide like did you get value out of this or if you didn't you you probably screwed something up and you should stop right now uh, at ten weeks uh, and well, you- it reminds me a little bit of of you know what I say is that, you know, I'm in the edit now, I think 90% of edit problems on movies are script problems. And it goes down to like, yeah, it's like what you said about really testing that original idea. It's almost like 90% of all the issues we have in the edit, it's not like we didn't get what we needed. It's that it just, it was never going to work. We didn't test it well enough. Yeah. So like the, soft, on the script level, yeah, the, the software, the software response would be, well, like, why didn't you act out the script uh, more thoroughly? You know what I mean? Like, I guess that would be that that would be the response to um, say look, that's how you would prevent that. You would just uh, you get a bunch of actors in the room and you'd act it out, and you'd probably try to find that that script problem early on before you even shoot at all. Well, usually script problems, it's interesting. Usually, it's 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 like motivation issues. It's like stuff that even if you did a table read, which we always do, and 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 you know you kind of do a little bit of that and you do rehearsals. Yeah. But it's it's really like motivation issues that don't jump off the page until you've shot stuff. Like for example, why is this person doing this? Why is this person helping this person? It, you know, and it's like I mean, could page... it be like the kind of like the nitty gritty things where it's just like why would that person walk across the room at this point in time? You know, like this person's got to be over there, but like there's no reason for them to walk during this conversation. Yeah, that's sort of a microcosm, but I think it's more like it's more like from scene to scene. It's less like stuff that happens within each scene. It's more about the connectivity because really, until you get to the edit, because the, the, part of actually this is an interesting point too is when you shoot movies, you always shoot them tremendously out of order. So you have the blueprint, which is the script, but then until you go back to the edit with everything you've shot you've never seen it together 
since it was in script form, which is a pretty insane way of doing something, whether you're building a house or, I don't know, building anything. Right, very... so like build a roof first and then try to, like, put it on. Right, uh, even, yeah. even if you build things off-site or in different pieces, generally when you actually construct them, they sort of go in, in, in the way that they were meant to, to, to go. And I think what's usually, it's looking at a script and looking at issues that will happen even though they haven't manifested themselves into what you've actually shot yet. And that's the tremendous challenge. Yeah. So I wanted to ask us both, um, just what did you do yesterday? Um, you want to kind of start that off? So yesterday was Wednesday. Um, yeah, what did I do yesterday? So yesterday I got back into town from, from Philadelphia, and it's weird. L.A. is really weird where after the holidays, it, it always appears as though nothing's happening. Um, it was also raining here. When it rains in Los Angeles, people just lose their minds. Um, it's like um, it's like the Pope is coming to visit or something. It's like people, uh, you know, the, the weather, it never rains in Los Angeles. And then it does, and people just go crazy, and they can't drive. And, and they just sort of, it was kind of empty, honestly, because people just stay home. It's, it's too dangerous to go out, um, which is very bizarre. Uh, so I got back yesterday. There's a number of projects there's a film called The Atticus Institute that is coming out in January that I did with the Saffron Company. Um, and so that is in the final stages of like marketing and release. Uh, and so, you know, we're, uh, it was written and directed by Chris Sparling, who's someone I've collaborated with a few times. He wrote uh, Buried, the movie with Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, Stuck in the Coffin, um, a film that came out a few years ago. And he also wrote ATM, which I did with David Brooks. And Chris... Uh, uh, he directed this movie called The Atticus Institute. And so I'm working on the marketing uh, with a company called Anchor Bay, um, who's releasing the film, and you know, working on stills, working on sort of memes and, and the trailer and stuff that can be shared on social media. So that's, you know, that's an example of a project that's really far down the road that we shot last year. Yeah, that's like, I guess, another aspect that people might not be aware of is, you know, you're, you're operating on a scale where you're also the person who's kind of de- trying to devise and produce assets for a social media campaign to go along with the movie. No, for sure. And honestly, a lot of people don't do that. But to me, and I don't, you know, we, we're not in charge of actually what goes out social. We don't do social media buys. We don't do like Facebook ad buys. Right. Someone else like, d- does that. But, you know, my thing is like, you can always get too close to something, but I know the movie really well. And so therefore, I'd rather be a step ahead and pull a bunch of stills, pull clips and present them as options to the to the distributor and say, what do you think about this? Like, we think this is effective. Right, because otherwise then, you might get something that doesn't even make sense because the person didn't see the movie or whatever. Well, no, for sure. And, and well, actually, the interesting thing is it's also possible to be really, like, way too close to something. And so yep. there are versions of trailers and stuff where I'm like, well, I know the movie, so um, is this effective? I don't know. But then, you know, obviously they test it. They do, like, many test... Uh, you know, not, not test screenings, but, you know, they show a lot of people, too. So it is possible to be too close to stuff, but we always try to to be ahead of that and pull clips and pull stills and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, just so people have that at least. Um, so, you know, I've been working on that. I'm, in, I'm also I'm in post on that, that horror film that I, I can't name. Um, it'll be under wraps for a while that we shot in September. It's a horror remake, and that's all I can say. Um, so yeah, I'm also working, I stopped by the edit, 
which is actually next door to my office, on the horror remake that I did in September that I can't say much more about. But um, that's an interesting process, too, because we just did a mini test screening, uh, what's called a friends and family screening, um, which is about 50 people. And you screen the film, and the, you know, the directors have only been editing for about five or six weeks, which really isn't that much time. Um, but we decided that with the holidays, it would be a good opportunity to screen it. And, um, you know, you, you, have, you have these questionnaire cards and people write down stuff. And the most important thing is in a middle test screening like that is, is pacing and, 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 you know, are people confused? Do people get stuff? Um, is it effective? Do people care? It's, it's all that kind of stuff. And so I think it was good to get that feedback. But now we have a, a mountain of feedback and we're trying to process it. So that's, that's what's happening on that movie. Um, and there's a film called The Choice, which is based on a Nicholas Sparks book uh, that I, I'm a co-producer on that I worked with with Peter Safran uh, that uh, his company did down in North Carolina. And so that's also entering post-production. So honestly, yesterday was just getting back to Los Angeles and trying to catch up on exactly where all three of those movies are. Right. All right, I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, so basically... Uh, my day yesterday consisted of taking a look at a few different branches of UI. So that what that means is we use something called GitHub, uh, which use a, uses a piece of software called Git. And that's a way for us to version our, um, our code. So before we send anything out, we put it in these separate branches, which are just like a copy of our, our app, but it lives um, on our machines. So we can, we can do as much as we want with it. Uh, screw it up as much as we want and it's not going to affect our clients so what happens is uh, it'll get to a certain point and I'll I'll have to review it for kind of like design and, and usability um, uh, kind of there's like kind of a rubric that we that we follow so it'll be you know maybe a change to our report builder which is the way we visualize uh, charts and graphs um, so that's like the main UI that our customers are using to uh, create charts has a whole bunch of different Fun, uh, features and menus that uh, you know it's it's a it's a tough it's a tough problem to solve with with this uh, this feature because there's no real analog for making a chart uh, in the real world uh, other than just drawing it. So now uh, other I, than having a massive whiteboard session, which <laughs> like everyone like whenever you get an office with a whiteboard, you're like I'm going to have a massive whiteboard session. And you're <laughs> waiting you're waiting for that moment, but then as soon as someone like you're always in a in a meeting and. And and someone like picks up the marker. You're like, don't don't do it. It's like, funny don't. that you. It's funny that you say that because I like I rarely ever use whiteboards. <laughs> like rare, we have them all over our office, and I think they look cool. And when some, but when someone draws something on there, it stays there for like six months. <laughs> like, like it's not being erased. Right. Um, it, it's like how out of context can this little anecdote be before it's just it's like there forever. Yeah. It just it just sits there because someone's like, it, it, do you still need this? And it's like that was two years ago, dude. <laughs> like no. What's well, also it's like now there's apps like Cam Scanner, which is great, where you can just take a picture and it just converts to a PDF immediately. Yeah. There's, there's just no reason. You can do to, it with Evernote. No, like I use Evernote yeah. a lot. Yeah. I like that. No, but it's also the whiteboard is also funny because it's like I think like the whiteboard is it's a weird social phenomenon. At least I think where the whiteboard's actually useless, except to the person who's writing. Except for the people selling whiteboards. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, to... it's very useful to people selling whiteboards. But the people, it's the whiteboard only serves the person who's actually writing on the whiteboard in shorthand. Like it only serves their shorthand. It yeah. Does not solve anything for anybody else. Yeah, there are. I think in the last year there's 
probably two times that I whiteboarded something and it actually had a had a profound effect on the people looking at it. Uh, and you know my drawings are terrible, which is kind of funny. I mean, like I'm a you know designer, but I, I can't draw for shit. But um, but the reason I said like the the analog, there's no real analog for chart making, is that you know when when you use Facebook. You know, you're posting a picture. You're posting a uh, a message. It's like a tangible thing. Yeah, like or, you can imagine yourself writing something down and handing it to someone, uh, or like printing out a picture and handing it to somebody. But it's it's there's no real there's 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 no other thing for like visualizing data. Like our brains are just not equipped uh, to handle data very well, which is why we need visualizations in the first place. Unless you're Russell Crowe and Beautiful Mind, and you just see stuff. You just like see math. <laughs> right. He sees mathematically. Uh, poorly designed ties, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you actually you actually remember that movie very well. I do. It's the it's the first scene. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So the other the other aspect of of what I'm doing is you know there are other projects that are in progress. One is a uh, an improvement to how our salespeople are um, on onboarding our clients. So we there's a bunch of loose ends that you know inevitably crop up as you're a growing company. You don't have the time and the resources to make sure that every single aspect of your process is, uh, especially the software aspects, are um, you know 100% airtight. So you have a lot of people improvising, and uh, what that means is you know you've got <laughs> different situations where you you, you know you want to send an automated email but because you don't do it that often it's just it falls on a person to do that you have to like send a have have a one of our salespeople send a, a an email that has to be put together which could have been done by a computer so part of this project is to automate some of the things that weren't being automated yeah but isn't that kind of dangerous though like i'm not talking about you know like skynet taking over all of your computers and and, and launching <laughs> nuclear weapons well, but... this is sending a few emails <laughs> Yeah, but equally as dangerous as we've seen, as we've seen time and time again. <laughs> Isn't there something that eventually is? Because I know your like your whole thing is technology uh, should help us do everything. And it's hard to speak for you, but it's almost like your whole thing is how can I how can I save myself time? How can I create things that save other people time? And I think that. But isn't there something? It's like it's like doesn't an email? I mean, maybe like you know, company picnic six p.m. Like that's fine. I'm sure a computer could do that. But it's funny that like, there there are awful ways to to write emails already. Like, do you really need an automated system? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yes, you do. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> uh, the reason is, um, you know, we may be sending out hundreds, if not thousands, of them, and you can't have a person uh, write them. And they're very, you know, you, you know, when you sign up for something, and it's and it's like, hey, it's, this is your username, and click here to log in. Yeah. You know, you don't need people writing that email, and that was oh no, for sure. Partially, what was happening with us is just, you know. We had, we're not a we're not a company that gets thousands upon thousands of new signups daily, uh, but we get you know dozens right, and and it was enough for our sales team you know in certain cases when they needed to, to do this, uh, to do it themselves. But it was just getting sloppy. So so the project was to do that, and uh, my role in that was really to just talk to everyone, make sure that we're. Um, we're we're going over all the use cases, so meaning like the you know the thing. What does this thing need to do, and uh, what needs to be aware of this? Like what other pieces of our our app need to be aware of what this piece of software is doing? So you write like a workflow, and that really is just drawing boxes and arrows. You know, you click on this button, and then these five things trigger in the app. And like one is an email, another one is like saving somewhere in the database that something's ha- happening. Uh, so I'm like 
so like if someone uh, signs up, you know, we save their email address, their company, keep track of whether they're a demo user, whether they're uh, a user that hasn't been implemented yet and hasn't paid or, or a customer that's, you know, has paid. And so what I did yesterday was uh, we had two developers working on both the UI and uh, the, some of the code that triggers the emails. And we, you know, uh, we, we sit around uh, their computer and took some of the salespeople who are stakeholders and we sat there and we just were like, all right, let's go through every single use case, uh, put the, the map, like the wireframe with all the boxes and arrows on the screen too so we can see, we can anticipate what's about to happen and just make sure that that's what happens. There's no errors. You get the right email. It has the right name on it. It kind of reminds me of a production meeting, although it seems more, it seems more, um, more productive. But what I mean by that is the... It's almost like that's like your tech scout. When you shoot a movie like the week before, you bring everyone to all the different locations, every department, and you just go through. It's like scene five, interior, <laughs> uh, NASA. This is what's happening in this scene. There's this. There's a flamethrower prop. There's the chicken. You know, and, and like you have like the animal handlers there, and the prop masters there, and like you know, you'll have the flamethrower and the chicken. It seems like no, but that's what you do. And, you, it's, and, what's funny is just that any successful company, any co- company that does something really well, any pretty much any person who does something really well, does that. They sit down and they earnestly go through every single detail and make sure that every single thing is worked out. The companies that that do things you know uh, poorly or just they do things just satisfactorily um they're the kind of people that they're like you know what this kind of does what it's supposed to do let's you know let's go to lunch you know like let's you know they're kind of phoning right. it in but the companies that do things well, really fun- well are the ones that really sit there and they scrutinize every single detail well the funny thing is it kind of re- responds to the different industries though because in film by the time you do the tech scout a lot of times you've been backed into so many corners but because you have the insane time restrictions of eventually you know when you start a project like you have to stick to a schedule because moving from the schedule is just really detrimental in uh financial and logistical terms and so a lot of times when you to me it seems like when you do this process as part of your business there's still time to make major corrections whereas in, in film you're sort of already backed into a corner like maybe there's a chance to change things 20 yeah. percent, but not that much yeah i mean i think we always have that eject button like you can i can always blow up a project uh but you have to do it under like extreme circumstances because you could do it all the time right um, scope creep uh is what it's called is when you you know you throw something in there that wasn't in the original plan that's going to take more time I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in my in my biz. I like scope creep. It's like mission creep, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> that, I like that. I mean, we say that all the time. Like if if somebody suggests something, we're like, yeah. I mean, that's a good idea, but it's gonna be scope creep. It's out. That's outside of scope. Having I'm, to... I'm trying to think, what do I have that you could use? I don't know. If there's anything? <laughs> oh, sometimes I use I have the term eighty six. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. Well, that's uh, uh, I use the term conflict vacuum. What is that? Which, well, it's like it's like nothing's happening. It's like when you watch a movie and it's like, uh, nothing's happening. Conflict vacuum, okay. Either the protagonist isn't driving the story or there's there's not enough in the way of the protagonist or there's nothing. Usually conflict vacuum happens around page 46. And uh, I'm being very specific, but usually conflict vacuum is like a second act issue you know it's like after the protagonist has sort of made their decision and they're they've you know they're they've uh they dove headlong into a pool of of uh of different things suddenly in the second act 
if you don't put more things in front of them to, to accomplish and vanquish, you have conflict vacuum. Um, like just nothing's happening. Um, I feel, I'm trying to think what else that you can actually, uh, we have, we have another one. Um, it's a bike shed argument. And the premise there is that you're in a meeting with a bunch of people. And if you start talking about like, um, you know, like nuclear physics, you know, the only person who's going to speak up in the room is the expert. But if you start talking about a bike shed, um, everyone and their grandmother has an opinion about how a bike shed, uh, can should be made should it have red paint should it have blue paint should it be made out of wood should it be made out of aluminum um and what happens is you get into this big unproductive argument where people are, are arguing about minor details that don't even matter so you just need to what we do is we're like hey you know what this is actually this is a bike shed argument um bob's gonna make the decision on this one Everyone's right stopped. okay i like that it's yeah. almost like it's like a lowest common denominator yeah it's like, it's like everyone Everyone can argue about what kind of donuts we're going to get for the meeting, right. but that's not going to help anything. Although conversely, I would say that even though I know very little about nuclear physics, I would still jump into that <laughs> argument because, because you know, there's something to be said about that. It's um, oh, I say this is actually maybe you could use this. Whenever part of testing a movie or or you know even reading a script or a title, you, you, after a certain point, you know, you run out of people especially if you work closely with, with, with a few people, at a certain point you run out of people who are neutral towards something, you know, whether it's your significant other or like, you know, friends and family. Like everyone, when you work on a movie, everyone sort of knows that you're working on this and details of that like creep into conversations all the time. So it's, it's hard to find people who are neutral to a project who don't know the plot, don't know anything mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. But, you know, to get a real opinion, that's really important. And so... A lot of times um, I call this harnessing ignorance because it's almost like when people uh, people are like, oh, I, I don't really know anything about that. Like, I don't know if I should watch it. And I'm like, well, no, you are the one person who should watch this movie and tear it to shreds because I need to harness your ignorance. <laughs> not not like that you're an ignorant person, but we need to harness your ignorance. Yeah, okay. That, that's, that's, that's one. Um, that sounds a little bit. It's a little bit uh, yeah. A, positive, a po- more positive way might be like, you know, I just need some fresh eyes on this. Yeah, you could <laughs> say that. But, you but, say, I need an untainted opinion. I'll say that a lot. Yeah, but untainted has the word taint in it. I feel like that also <laughs> has, yeah, I feel like, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like you, you could make mistakes either uh, way with that phrase. But yeah, one, one last one is the, um, the McDonald's argument. And that's one where you, you ask a bunch of people uh, where they want to go for lunch and no one says anything. So you just suggest McDonald's. <laughs> and it's the second you do that, everyone else has an opinion. Yeah, because it's almost like, okay, I like that. Um, yeah, I like that, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll think more about that. We'll think, <laughs> I like that. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, we were talking about basically what is... So we know what we've, what we've been working on recently. We were talking about what are some of the big things that have impacted our respective industries. And, and you were mentioning the Sony hack recently, whether it was North Korea or whether it was ISIS or, or, or whoever, um, or just some, some kids in, in San Francisco. I, I, I think, I think I'm going with kids, uh, probably not San Francisco, probably more like, um, Ukraine, right. uh, <laughs> Eastern Europe is probably where they are. Um, there was a, a breakdown of like why reasons why it's not North Korea. Um, it's just like North Korea, uh, state governments, uh, usually don't put flaming skulls and, and skeletons on the computers that they hack. Uh, yeah, but I guess, I guess North Korea really has nothing to lose by saying 
it could have been us. <laughs> did they like, do that? I don't even know if you they did. did. Yeah, they did. They said, they're like, we're not going to not deny <laughs> that this was not us, <laughs> which I think is kind well, of a well, genius position. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good position. But it kind of gets down to, you know, the main movie that was sort of stolen uh, was Fury, which is the Brad Pitt tank movie. It's been out for about two months. Right, okay. Uh, it's sort of, it's weird because although that's probably the most well-known movie, it, to me, it's a little bit like Water Under the Bridge because it's already been out. I, I mean, again, although that's, I'll take that back because, you know, the films that do have Blu-ray and other sort of legs on home video are, are at least people that have stars, movies that have stars in them. So I feel like, you know, well, again, the whole metric of the, of... the other side of it is just like, yeah, I, I think, you know, they, they stole that movie. I think they stole, you know, maybe some other movies that didn't come out. But also the fact that they've been hacked means that they can get hacked again. Like, you never know. Once you're hacked, you don't know if you're clean. Well, that's the biggest thing. The two biggest things are that point, and the second point is, which was really embarrassing for them, is that a lot of their financial and, like, all of the Social Security numbers and all of the information for all their employees and, like, internal memos, you know, found its way to Gawker in different places. So that's a whole other issue. <laughs> um, and it's a publicly traded company, so that's a whole, that's a whole other Yeah, that could, that could turn into tons of lawsuits. Yeah. But, for random things that have nothing to do with this. Yeah, but for the purposes of this, it kind of goes back to the argument of, you know, why I think, you know, the film industry is, is in trouble for different reasons. But, you know, one of the reasons is there's sort of been this generation that's been cultivated, and I'm sure you're going to refute this and disagree with this instantly, but there's sort of been this generation that's been cultivated that's been, you know, cultivated not to pay for something if it's, if it's available, you know, if it's freely, it's just available. so easy. Yeah, if it's if it's so easy and it's it's not likely that you're going to get caught. Um, yeah, you're just like you know, what? I'll I'll just steal it. <laughs> you know, right? But there's several con- contributors to this too, though. It's not just the torrent culture, but it's also it's it's also the Netflix culture because Netflix is a huge thing that it's um, you know, it, it, the, the town's a little bit torn on. It's you know, it's great for filmmakers, um, but at the same time, it's sort of eroding different windowing and foreign sales measures that for years uh, have been, you know, traditional ways of getting movies financed because technically... Right. Can you can you actually explain that? Because most people are completely unaware of this, like, the foreign pre-sales aspect of uh, filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, independent filmmaking, like studio films, larger films are obviously financed by the studio, but small films... And small, it's a very vague. It could be anything from a few million dollars to maybe you know fifteen, even twenty million dollars. There are independent films that are financed up to that amount, and even larger. But you know, traditionally, like the huge summer blockbusters are obviously huge studio films, and usually you know can be collaborations between between different studios. But you know, for smaller films, what you do is you. Uh, it's a market. It's it's you know, and there's AFM, which is the American film market. You have Cannes, you have Berlin, uh, Toronto. Uh, and, and generally what you do is you have a script, you have your blueprint, you have a director and you have actors, some combination of those things together. And generally you have a track record if you're a producer doing stuff and you go there and you, and you say um, to the different foreign distributors, I'm making this movie. What will you pre-buy it for? It's sort of like a futures market on a crop. Um, yeah. It's not, not exactly an apples to apples comparison, but it's a little bit like – a futures market where, say... It's not a coffee beans to, to corn husks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. But it's like... So it's, it's, like you're, um, it's like you're growing corn, and you're like, okay, so I know what last year's harvest was. Like, say you've made movies before. This 
corn comes from a good stock of, of seeds. It's non Monsanto seeds. Uh, so I actually had the rights to them. And, uh, and, you know, I have this and, and these are, you know, I can't really think of the, the analogy dies there, but it's like, you know, you have these actors, you have this, and I'm going to make this product right now, halfway through the year, um, people can buy low before you've even planted the corn and then halfway through the harvest, they can do a check-in and they can see where the corn's at and then they can buy a little bit higher. And it's sort of the same thing with a film where before you even shot it, it's in its roughest state. It doesn't even exist. But then say after you've shot, you can cut a trailer together, you can cut stuff together. And then at the next market in the schedule, whether it's AFM in November or Berlin in February, suddenly you can then show more and then people have a larger sense. So people can buy lower early on if they believe in, in the package you have, or you, or they can wait till later. Now, traditionally the whole model was finance it as much as possible. Say if it's like a $5 million movie, you know, you want to try and do, you know, a few million dollars in sales or you want to do, you know, close to that $5 million mark in sales so that your, your gap of what the budget is, what you need to finance from other sources is very small. And then anything that you sell the film for domestically is pure profit. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but you want, and there's a whole tax credit aspect too, but you wanted to finance the film basically on foreign so that you have no risk and then domestic U.S. was all upside. Now, in some ways, Netflix has helped because Netflix, if you don't get a huge theatrical release, which is increasingly harder to do, you know, Netflix can be a few hundred thousand dollars of money that just didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. Now, right. DVD, DVD was huge 10 years ago and cable was bigger, but Netflix didn't exist and now that's a new revenue stream. However, what's happened is and there's actually a really good IndieWire article about this. Maybe we could link to in the show notes. But, you know, basically Netflix has eroded the foreign sales markets because, you know, once something's online in the U.S. and Canada, uh, it basically cuts into the windowing of foreign cable and foreign pay TV, which was always a huge component of the foreign sales. Um and so Netflix basically is like a one-size-fits-all for, for all foreign sales. And it has really eroded the value of those foreign sales. Um, so that's a whole – I forget where we were before, but talking about the piracy. But that's really – the Netflix culture has sort of eroded foreign sales a little bit, and it will continue to do so. But it's also – you know, people are always like – you see a trailer and you're like, well, that doesn't really look that good. I'm going to, I know it'll be on Netflix eventually. Yep. So I do why, that exact thing. Yeah. Why pay for it? I mean, where we were before was that you were saying that there's some skepticism around Netflix uh, because it's upsetting the people's ability to get foreign pre-sales. Right, exactly. Because, because you know, the German buyers, the French buyers, they know it'll be on Netflix. And then suddenly they know that their sub distributors aren't going to pay as much. And so their risk is higher because what they're putting out, they might not be able to recoup their cost as much because by the time the crop or the movie, whichever analogy we're on, it reaches maturity. So these, these kind of like romantic comedies and horror movies that maybe were a sure thing for a few hundred thousand dollars, are, they, they might not be. Right, and a few hundred thousand dollars per territory added up to make the, you know, the cost of the film. Um, suddenly, you know, if it's on Netflix, for cheaper, it could just, like those sub-sales... Because you know they're right. Because I mean they're thinking about uh, theater sales, right? 
Exactly. I mean, they're, they're looking at their sub-distribution. Like, you have a company who buys it for Germany. They're looking at, you know, are they going to put it out in theaters there? Are they going to just do DVD there? Suddenly, if Netflix is there already, <laughs> there's just no reason for their, for their business. And we haven't quite reached that point yet, but we're very close to where there's sweeping Netflix deals in different countries or in the EU. If there's an EU, which I don't think will happen immediately, but suddenly all of that just gets completely undercut and just the value of it just isn't there. I mean, couldn't you always have them assign an agreement like, hey, you can't put this on Netflix? Yeah, you, you do what's called a foreign holdback. Actually, for traditionally for domestic, for if you have a... Because, you know, the whole thinking is that U.S. drives foreign for film and, and in some cases foreign comes out first, but usually in deals you have what's called a foreign holdback for the U.S. where, you know, it's like the film can't come out any sooner than six months, you know, after the U.S. release for a window. And you could do something where, like you say, it cannot be on Netflix, uh, you know, sooner than a few months after the foreign release. But the problem is, you know, all this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like, there are real-world economic factors to it. And, you know, for The Den, which we put out, uh, you know, earlier this year in the U.S. in March... You know, there's some territories that won't release it. I don't think France is going to release it until next summer. Oh, wow. I forget. Yeah, and so it's really in, it's really hard to control all the piecemeal aspects of when things will come out. It's really tough to to then go back and then to go back and potentially sacrifice your U.S. Netflix deal or your foreign Netflix deal and say, "Hey, we need to respect all of these holdbacks." It's a really it's like you're just trying to harness thirty different things that are moving in different directions. It's really tough and, and it's almost like you're like you dropped a, a bag of valuable stuff that's like running away from you and you, you're just trying to grab as much of that stuff as possible <laughs> and you and undoubted you'll you'll lose some of it that's what i feel like it's sort of like yeah is, is that from that movie uh uh was it far and away <laughs> nicole kidman drops a bunch of silver spoons you're you're just doing really good with references really today. obscure like yeah. references like, i really like that movie but my yeah. irish heritage there you go um, but yeah, it's an interesting question about piracy where it's like, I don't know, it's not just piracy, but it's like the Netflix question of what, you know, what does this all mean? What is something, you know, what is worth paying for? Um, well, like I said to you uh, before, it's just, I think that people just need to find uh, new channels to make money. And I think that merchandising is a pretty, uh, there's a pretty big opportunity there. Um like I was saying, like a real simple thing is like you see somebody that's wearing something pretty cool, and you're like, well, you know, where did that come from? Like it's right. The best example is you're watching Drive, and you're like, I want to buy his scorpion jacket. I, how do I, I want how those do I... awesome gloves? Yeah, like so. Yeah, like trying to find it, that's something really easy to do. You just need to be able to deliver that. You know, like it could be on your website. It could be like something in the movie, which I. I actually experienced today with Comcast. There was uh, an Overstock commercial, and this thing came up. This overlay was like, "Hey, do you want to buy this?" And um, what platform was it on? Though, obviously, I've seen YouTube videos that have embeds, and I've actually created them. But what? It, what? It was, it was on TV or what? <clears throat> no, it was on. So we have a we have some TV. Uh, I forget. It might be Samsung, and um, it has like some platform called like Smart TV. Huh. And it's a platform that looks really good, but is like impossible to use. Uh, I we're constantly just flipping out at this thing because it's just so hard to use. We're trying to like type in uh, letter by letter, and <laughs> the sensitivity of the, of the thing is is like 
it's the slowest possible thing ever. So it Which takes, does sound like the future of entertainment, really. It's, yeah, it's just <laughs> typing in each individual thing. So that, that popped up over the screen, and um, I wanted to flip my coffee table over, uh, yeah. to be perfectly honest. Yeah, just poorly, poor execution. Uh, but if, they, if you can get somebody to buy in that moment, you know, send it to their phone, something like that, I don't know. Well, it's, it's someone who obviously wants to create, you know, the worst thing ever when you're making a, a, a creative project is for someone to be taken out of the experience. And really, exactly. I, can think, I can think of no it has uh, to be added worse to experience, experience. <laughs> than, than trying to buy all the furniture in the movie while you're watching it. <laughs> um, but I, I It's, like, it's think... not that I don't want to buy the James Bond suit. It's right. that I just don't want to buy it now. And uh, I, I need a better time to be it's, it's, Well, really what... There should be a metric where um, there should be a, a metric uh, where uh, basically your entire catalog. It's like you're recently watched on Netflix. It should then remind you. It should send you emails about. I mean, not send you emails. That's so like primitive. But it, it should send you maybe tweets in your feed or something that are sponsored post haste. You know about uh, like the drive jacket. It would then like track you for weeks. That sounds really frustrating, but you know it's like that metadata is saved from. Oh, your, it's it's your, there. Like, yeah. Oh, for sure, it's there. It's like what you said about it's like the custom emails that you're not building for RJ Metrics on sign up. It's like could the computer track who signed up? And the best part would be if they found a um, if they found like one unique piece of information from that person somehow, like online. It's like oh. It's like, Matt, you signed up in Philadelphia. I hope you're staying warm out there. And then you make it seem like it's a person writing the email. That's a whole other conversation. But <laughs> yeah, I, you artificial could do intelligence, that. yeah, yeah. Well, no, but you could stick, but it's not, but it, the way you code it is, it, it's like a little detail, because details are everything, and, and you just track. Absolutely, and it's not that hard to get that kind of stuff. Right, exactly. So I wonder if it's almost like you find a way where it's like you watch this movie, there are 15 to 20 um and you know, you, and Amazon is actually is is primed, no pun intended, to to do this. Where, you know, Amazon tracks everything that you watch on Amazon. Suddenly, it, there's a system where you can just ship everything and buy everything seamlessly based on what you've on what you've done. So I feel like that really should be what they do if they don't do that already. If that's not in beta already, and they they have drones like on standby to have stuff delivered to you. Mm. But I feel like. Um, but yeah, I mean, if that's the future of entertainment and saving entertainment, it's just buying more shit. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the way you say it like that uh, does bring up a point. It's just like, you know, the, the whole thing shouldn't just be, oh, uh, well, you just got to get everything in the movie. I guess the bigger point is that people want to be immersed in an experience. It, you know, you, you go to Comic-Con and you see exactly what I'm talking about. You see people that they want to be in the movie. They want to be a part of it. And... um that means that you just need to give them other avenues to be a part of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like TV does this really well, you know, from, like, TV... Because TV is much more of a uh, in-the-moment experience. Yeah. You know, people... Because, honestly, the future of entertainment are experiences, whether that's um, virtual reality, which we'll get to on a future show, um, or, uh, you know, just immersive content or stuff happening at the same time. You know, going to see a movie in a theatrical experience is still an amazing experience sometimes. Usually going to the movies yes. can be a you, bad experience. But see, <laughs> if you want to see Malibu's Most Wanted, the only movie I've ever <laughs> walked out of. Uh. Right. But no, but see, seeing a great comedy, like, I, you know, yeah, it's like, I, I, I 100% agree. When it came out, 
with a packed audience and everyone's kind of drunk and, and, you know, it's like that can be a lot of fun. Um, but you know, at the same time, there are also ways where, you know, watching different TV shows, there's, you know, you can, you can live tweet with creators, you can live tweet with people. There's a whole sort of way of doing that. I think TV is more primed to do the sort of interactive uh, merchandising and all of that, that rather than films that are happening. It's just easier to control things in, in one specific time frame. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting to see where things go. I think that um, in some ways, the, it's, the wait, the wait uh, till Netflix thing is something that I don't think can be saved. It can only be saved by making better movies and making stuff that people want to watch. Um, but is there anything, before we close, is there anything in, in your sort of wheelhouse that kind of fits that? Or is it sort of just the complete opposite? Is there anything that you're like, I wish people wanted to consume this but they just they're sort of entitled to it rather than wanting to actually spend money on it do you, do you find that i i think the way that you frame that uh passes some kind of judgment on people and mm-hmm. it's what it's i think it's a very common uh kind of view about the whole situation is just you know like you know these kids these days uh they don't they don't have any respect for the the money and the time that went into these things and I, I don't quite mean it like that. I don't think it's all kids. I mean, I don't. It's. I mean, it's but, sort of. Like, you know what? I, but you know what I mean. It's just like there's this 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 judgment that there is. You know, uh, there's just this overall overarching sentiment that has creeped into into this our reality, where right. I think it, it really it's it's just a question of of just good economics. Uh, I think that uh, there's a reason that Amazon Prime uh, came out of nowhere to be a, you know a competitor to Netflix. And, um, you know, Comcast on demand has gotten better. I wouldn't say it's as good as Netflix, but, you know, they're getting they're getting there. And then these things like I don't ever pirate movies because it's just a pain. You know, I know that Comcast is watching every single thing that I download. And, you know, if they want to get me, they'll you know, they'll they'll turn off my Internet. Uh, And it's just it's just too easy to pay two dollars or three dollars to rent a movie. Well, we used to say that, like, you know, you and I used to say that, like, piracy isn't a, um, it's not a content problem, it's a distribution problem. There, and, there is a, um, what, what is that movie that has Hitler freaking out, and a lot of people use it as a meme? Oh, Downfall. Yeah, right. Because, it, yeah. There, someone overdubbed that, like, put different, uh, put English subtitles about the whole, like, uh, Netflix thing. I forget what, what it was exactly. But it was just so spot on. Just talking about like it's just a problem of tech and a problem of distribution. It's not a problem of like us versus them, uh, people pirating versus people you know doing their job trying to make a living. It's it's just a you know it's just a bad economic system. Um, well, yeah, that's working its hope, way out. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that somewhat. I mean, I do think that what I what I sort of hope in some ways is that everything will sort of bottom out because it, some, suddenly everything's available on Netflix. And it's almost like people will learn their lesson because basically what's happened is like you really had like, you know, kid in the candy store a little bit where you had no access to any digital content. And now everyone has like not like way too much access, but now suddenly everything is there. And it's like we need to figure out what the model is. And I think that and people have been saying that for years, but I think eventually entertainment will be considered a commodity like you'd pay for gas and electric and and, and for Internet. I mean, I pay, almost... I pay nine bucks a, a month for Spotify. I pay nine bucks a month for for Prime. And to me, I'm getting away with with murder uh, with, with the amount of content that I'm consuming. Like I'm watching, you know, 
15 movies uh and probably not that much but like five ten movies a a a month i'm listening to music every single day like almost all day and it's costing me nine dollars a month like that's an outrageously low price for what it, for the value i'm getting and yeah it's pretty insane i mean really if you think about you know back to when we were you know teenagers and and with napster and everything else like it's actually i mean it's, yeah i paid 18 dollars for a blink 182 uh cd we can always you can always edit that out of the podcast <laughs> Um, I, and I, it's still one of my favorite CDs. But no, it's it's really an interesting thing. Is like, what do you need to do to make something valuable? I think that should be a topic for a different. That that should be sure. the whole topic of it. It's like, what does value mean in the 21st century? Because it's, it's a really interesting quagmire, you know. Yeah. Because um, I I do think that ultimately I think it's less piracy. It's funny, like when I was at, it's less piracy where it's like half that and half the. You know, like I'll wait for it to be on Amazon Prime for free. You know, it's it's the it's the windowing, and it's also like when I was at a conference, I was on a panel, and I was like really tired, and and some woman was like, we were taking questions, and I told you about that. Like some woman was like, so this is awful. Like these people have been pirating my short film, and everyone else in the panel was like, oh, that's awful. Are they torrenting it? Like how? What's happening? Are they, they, <laughs> do, do they, they use the torrent on you? Yeah, they use the torrent, and I, and I just <laughs> said, I said, congratulations. And and she was like, what? Like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, well, that's that's great news. And she was like, are you making fun of me? I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm a very sarcastic person, but I'm very serious because if someone is stealing your short film, that means that, that you made something that somebody wants to watch. And that's, that, that's great. That's great for you. <laughs> and she was just like, this is awful. This is awful. And I said, no, that's great. It means that you, you accomplished something. Um, you just have a distribution problem. You don't. You don't have a content problem. Um, so that was that was funny. I'm not sure if she got that, but uh, <laughs> she just she stomped out of the room like yeah, she this, stomped out. I mean, some people. Dan I mean, Clifton is no good. Yeah, no. That was uh, that was the last time I spoke on a on a circuit for a while. I was I was removed. <laughs> and they never invited me back. <laughs> <laughs> it was some it was some bullshit film festival somewhere, and I was just like, uh, I'm tired. No, it was. Um, yeah, I will get into it, but, but no, but, I, but that's exactly the kind of mindset where it's like, and like, of course, no one was stealing her movie. It was just she was just saying that. I I think I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but what does value mean? That that'll be that'll, that'll be a good topic. Yeah, that'll be the next episode. Well, I guess that's uh, let's, let's kind of like wrap it up. I mean, yeah, exactly. I um, did. I had fun. This is this is awesome. I think this is a start to uh, something great. This is Dan Clifton. Thanks for listening to the Mercenary Podcast. If you have any questions about life or what Matt and I do, what we don't do, quantum physics, or any of these things, uh, feel free to send questions to mercenary at top right corner. Dot com and we'll attempt to answer some or all of them uh, in, in the order that we want to. Thanks. Thanks.